Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. Uh, we essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you. We figure out what your operations are. We figure out what your processes are. We figure out what your team doesn't like to do. And we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. Uh, but this isn't specifically about what we do. It's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Uh, who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? Um, what are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to uh, listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team. Uh, our website is invisible.co uh, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plain Sight Podcast. My guest today is Ai Yukino. Uh, she is a data scientist at Invisible. Welcome to the show. Hello, glad to be here. I finally get to use my fancy mic setup. Yeah, best microphone of any guest I've had so far, and I've done like 400 episodes. So, oh wow, that's quite a lot, man. Yeah. You really? Yeah. Um, I'm kind of surprised. So no one had like a really fancy SMB 87. Uh, what was it? what was it? SMB 6787, something like that. SMB 67. Well, that's the one I'm going to start. I'm going to give three people options because I, sometimes I, I give people ask what microphone I should use and I give a cheap one and then I give the Rode microphone. Um, and uh, I think I'll, I'll send that one that you just sent as the kind of premier premier microphone because it does actually sound good. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really cool. Nobody Nobody's ever had one. Oh, okay. Very cool. Um, yeah, I think it might be sometimes a little weird as well. It's a small diaphragm condenser microphone so technically picks up more room noise and things so i hope in post it's not too bad uh, okay. but um i find that it just picks up my voice better as well so and I'll you got it that. you got it because you said you're a teacher is it okay if we talk more about that oh yeah 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 um so really quick before invisible um i did teach at coding boot camp and i did teach partly in grad school for for a little bit um during the pandemic so very nice and i got more into audio gear and that kind of thing um it was only recently i actually got a nice drawing tablet um which i don't use that much during zoom but but yeah so i went all in on on the setup um can't really show it that well but uh webcam is a boom arm mic is a boom arm so also oh wow you got boom arms okay interesting I'm gonna. I'm gonna soon. I'm now that I know where I'm living full time for a long time. I'm in Buenos Aires now, um, and I'm gonna live down here for a long time. Now I want to start investing in some in some of that stuff. Although it's all three three times the price as it would be uh, up there. But if I fly to Paraguay, I can get everything cheap, um, which is a crazy a crazy hack that you'd only only oh, know wow. if you came to down to Buenos Aires. Out of curiosity, do you all have a big fat tax there? Because I feel like. Outside of the U.S., everyone pays huge VAT or import taxes for luxury goods, so something like that. Yeah, so with Argentina, I, they might they might have a VAT tax, but I'm not sure. Uh, I do know they have huge import taxes, and also not only import taxes, import regulations, and they also have two currencies. Uh, one is the official rate, and one is the blue rate. And the blue rate is funny; it's called blue, but they actually it's actually a black market rate. Uh, but the black market rate is what everybody uses. 
and the official rate is actually way, way worse. So if you go pull money out at the at the ATM, you're going to get sort of ripped off compared to what you would get on the black market. And so the fact that there's huge import taxes and there's a difference between the exchange rate, if you're a business, if you're running a business importing electronics, you are by law required to do it at the official rate. Uh, so it's an extreme, like, it's just like one of the hardest places to do business in the world uh, uh, because of all these different things. Oh man, I'm sorry to hear that, but uh, it does sound like Buenos Aires is a beautiful place. Buenos Aires is absolutely 100% amazing and and totally beautiful. Um, so what did you teach at that coding bootcamp? Uh, I taught two classes, initially full stack web development and then data science. You know, I'm doing data science. Um, I have to admit that my formal education didn't involve that much data science. I took like some graduate statistics classes and things. Uh, data science and the hype was getting popular in machine learning, but I focused more on math. My degree was just math, so just continued there. And actually having the theor theoretical background made it easy to pick up things. Um, I think I have strong tastes in coding tools and things, so that also made learning coding not too bad. Okay, well, that, so that's super interesting. I want to go into that more about coding specifically and how you're using AI. Uh, so you said you use a lot of coding tools. And I'm imagining that those are a lot of software coding tools, or maybe all software coding tools. Uh, so I imagine the pickup for for AI was really big. Uh, how, how are you using AI within your coding? And feel free to be as technical as you want. So I surprised a lot of my teammates saying this as well. Uh, I actually don't use ChatGPT that much. So I'm very particular about using new packages. And of course, you know, um, ChatGPT doesn't have updated mm -hmm. syntax and things. It doesn't always change things, but I like to experiment with like more, I don't want to say niche packages, but less common packages. So just an ex as an example, in data science, people often, often use pandas as a data frame library, but I use polars, uh, which actually has some, <clears throat> some bigger followings like in finance and things because it's just faster and it does things in different ways, but it's not the standard for data frame libraries. Um, it's standard enough that I can just Google and find things on Stack Overflow, but I worry that if I do chat GBT, it's not always uh, going to give me like the right syntax and things. Um, I will say there are certain cases I still do use chat GBT and such forth. So um, like regular expressions, like I know I should probably study this and I can just do it on my own, but sometimes I just want to say, oh, I'll match it with this pattern. Just give me a pattern. And I know there are generators and things out there, but I like how I can talk to chat GBT and say, give me a pattern. Now explain it because because I'm going to mm -hmm. double check and make sure it doesn't break. And then, of course, as a third step, I go outside of ChatGPT and I look up documentation and say, OK, well, does it actually do this? Yes, it does. And then use it. Um, I'm not always that thorough, but there's kind of niche use cases there where I expect the training data to be in there. Um, I know that some of my colleagues, like my boss, Lexi, also likes it for code structure, which I don't do as much. I think it would save a lot of time where you want to write a package or something and it doesn't it's not really worth investing the time to think really hard about oh do you need to use this technical thing in python or this other technical thing in python and does that accomplish what you know uh, your user needs and you can just ask chat gpt okay give me recommendations explain and then you can do it and then you can double check with the docs so that's fine it doesn't need to literally write code it can be quite useful um mm. but yeah i don't use that as much as i should um How ironically use... for for like the work I, I call ChatGPT to do client work, but not for my own coding. So yeah. a little weird. 
Have you ever used cursor.sh, cursor IDE? I have not. I have not heard of that one before. Okay, so Cursor is a really interesting story. Uh, it's by a, an Indian guy who went to MIT and such, and he, he just took a virtual vir, visual code editor, uh, I believe that's the name of it, and then just created this awesome implementation with AI uh, inside of it with ChatGPT for uh, the API there. And uh, did some really, really amazing UI kind of additions to putting integrate. And he did it really early. He did it within a couple months of the API. Um, and and it just like it, my my programmer friend has been teaching me how to teach myself how to code using a combination of ChatGPT and Cursor. Um, and it is wild to have a you, with Cursor you can actually um, question the entire code base with your question. And it can also edit and create code inside. And I had found out about it before my programmer friend started to teach me, uh, but I just got stuck because I didn't know enough about how all these different things got together. And then since he's been here in person showing me how to do it every time I have a question, it's just like, I've started building a website. I've started deploying a website. I've like, and all it's all pass or fail. So it's, it's all like uh, just cr uh, crazy easy as long as you have the will to understand a lot of complex technical things really quickly. Um, uh, but really the main thing is, is that you mentioned Stack Overflow. From your perspective, you're a specialist in this. So like ChatGPT is probably gonna give you a lot of things that you know already probably aren't right. For me as a beginner, it's way above my level. Uh, so I can just, I can just uh, as long as it's not inside some sort of incredible niche or specialty, uh, it usually give me the right answer and plug it together in, in all these different ways. So it's totally revolution revolutionized my ability of knowing what's possible, um, which is which is super interesting. If you have any questions on that, let me know. But otherwise, uh, I've oh, got yeah. some more questions for you. Yep. Uh, not a comment, but I will. Oh, not a question, but I will say a comment. That does make a lot of sense. Um, that when you're initially starting out, and I can imagine jumping to any any other language or learning some other uh, ML technique that I don't use as much. Uh, you don't know how to look for things and, and what to look for. And you don't know, given an answer, oh, should I dig into this deeper or just accept it as is? So ChatGPT for that is quite good. Um, I have done that for some personal things. Um, it varies, like with image, the um, image recognition is very nice because we have um, access to premium things. But um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like when you're a beginner or just trying to learn like really new topics and not like closely related topics to what you already know. Brilliant. Uh, so let's talk more about the specialty specialist generalist type of conundrum as it comes to AI. Uh, I've done some interesting interviews in my personal channel uh, related to uh, this one AI service called Personal AI. And Personal AI is a very interesting one. Uh, from talking to them, I basically realized that there's a framework uh, that's there's personal knowledge you know, personal knowledge about ourselves, all of our friends, all of our family, all of the things that we think about. There's a language model for that. There's general knowledge, which is a language model for um, uh, like like LLMs, uh, where basically if you're looking for some general answer, you know, in the realm of all knowledge that exists, like ChatGPT is probably going to have it. You know, it's same as Wikipedia, same problem as Wikipedia, that it's like you never know really and, and everything in that. Well, that and that brings into the special specialist, which is then you have this third category, which is specialist knowledge. Now that specialist knowledge, if you, I would actually love to turn this around on you, ask you, um, 
how long until we start having LLMs or technology that can essentially uh, uh, dominate specialties as well as the general knowledge? That's a good question. Um, I may need to be corrected by someone else, but I feel like with OpenAI's approach, supposedly their their LLM, LLMs, or at least GPT-4, is um, mixture of expert models. So I'd, I'd also have to look um, deeper into this as well, but I don't think there's literally code that says, okay, route it to this type of you know portion of the neural network that does better with chemistry and this portion uh -huh. that does better code, but that's why, um, it can be so good for certain certain areas like coding because they invest the time to have that training data into it. So that's not quite the same thing as just an LLM dedicated to a specific specialist area, but I feel like that's an approach people probably already try, um, at least with getting data. Because I think initially if you just have, you know, random internet data and you scrape it and you try to apply all of it, it's not going to be good and you have to curate and then I think um, companies realize, oh, well, you need actual, you know, uh, text content generated from experts. So there's already a push towards that. I don't know when they will split off into dedicated LLM models. They would be mm. smaller, probably cheaper to run. But I think the issue is for some chatbot things, you just need to also have like conversational abilities. So you can't split off everything into purely specialist domains. Um, but yeah, as far as the time frame, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the market would be like because I think in mathematics, so my old field before I switched to more industry data science, um, I'm not sure how many of them would trust that. Mathematicians already have their own kind of um, different, I don't want to say ML systems, but like formal proof verification systems. So hmm. other types of software where they oh. can say, oh, well, prove this statement and it can it can prove it but you have to write in a special language, not like conversational. You can't just say, well, just prove, you know, Fermat's last theorem and give me all the details. You could try that with ChatGPT and maybe it could get close for some famous uh -huh. problems, but um, the calculations and things are, are still rough. So is that is that Wolfram, is that Wolfram's language? Is that like a specialized math language? Um, Not Wolfram, there's actually a few of these. Uh, oh, I, forgot, I forgot these, I'll have to look it up later. Uh -huh. um, I want to say something is like link. That's not that's not quite the right name, but um, yeah, I'll have to get back to you on this. Sure. But there was some recent famous um, problem where there was a Fields medalist and he was trying to verify some difficult proof where he did it by hand before, and he didn't trust his own results because it's it's just very difficult. So he put it into a formal uh, proof verification system so it could prove it programmatically. Um, that's not quite ML. But um, that's kind of the, the, the trend that experts in math do. I can't say what other experts would want for their specific fields, but it may not always be just a chatbot. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah. It's going to be different depending on the specialty. This was a fun conversation. It reminds me of a fun conversation I had with somebody down here in Buenos Aires. Uh, I think we just met on like a WhatsApp group or something and we went to the park and we were talking and he was a, he had studied um, material engineering uh, at Berkeley and all these other things. And he, he, we were talking about the use cases for specifically for uh, special specialist knowledge. And he was talking about his field and all the people who used AI. They're like, ah, there's no way I'm going to use this. There's no, there's because materials and physics and everything like that, there's just such a different thing than language. Um, and you just brought up another point, which is math. 
I guess we could even go into that as like, what are the other categories of specialist knowledge where, I mean, there's vision too as well. And that that's getting, that's going really crazy. And I've been seeing a bunch of robotics stuff too, uh, particularly the Tesla robot recently that started to fold laundry. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw that, but that was pretty wild. Um, well, so how does it feel to be in the middle of an AI revolution? It feels lucky, uh, a little, a little scary, but I don't mind it. I'll, I'll take um, the nice pay and do cool stuff with it. Um, I'll have to say that um, when I was an undergrad, the impression, or maybe just at my, my university or just academia in general, but the impression we had about industry was if you couldn't make it as a, you know, a top researcher, then you went to industry and did programming. Um, we knew data science was big and deep learning was actually strong. We, we just called it deep learning. We didn't think of it as uh, towards uh, art of, like general uh, AI yet, but we knew there were powerful methods. And a lot of people did try to go into data science or finance and things like that. So the impression of things there weren't weren't that good, to be honest. Uh, but now it's it's booming and mathematicians are also actually using ChatGPT and things and they're looking forward to seeing more uh, AGI tools being developed mm. that could help with math. Um, Sorry, could you rephrase the question again or, or say the oh, question again? No, I, 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 that gave me a new question uh, about uh, about AGI and about artif artificial intelligence and what your what your take on it is like, what, you know, what is intelligence? What is artificial intelligence? And then what is artificial general intelligence? Uh, and uh, we can uh, cover other questions as well, if, if that's not a good question. OK, uh, I can take a stab at it. I'm going to try to not make big claims because this is not my area of expertise, but I'll try to at least temper specifically in my previous area of math. Um, hmm. What is AGI is tough, but I think um, how I'm perceiving things are going right now at least is that for more traditional ML, like this is underselling a lot of really cool advancements in it in, uh, in, in former hyped up areas of ML like um, adversarial learning and teaching, you know, machines to play video games and like exploit, you know, physics in the games that you, you wouldn't see before. Like there's lots of cool stuff. I always have been cool stuff in image recognition, but I think personally, um, before seeing LLMs and generative AI and, and, um, even generative image AIs, like before LLMs, I didn't really think of ML as artificial intelligence because they were kind of solving very specific problems and they could be kind of smart. I still remember sometimes it was nice to like take out my smartphone, take a picture and then do image recognition and translate text. So you could do that for a while, maybe not at production scale, maybe not as practical now, but you could do that in consumer devices. But now with um, generative text AI, at least and things like LLMs, it feels closer towards a general intelligence where mm. you can talk to something and it can kind of reason. We have to be careful what we mean by reason. It's not, I would not trust it like to do my taxes. Like even if I said, okay, well, I'm going to design a rag and then here are all the, you know, US regulations that do my taxes. I, I would not, I would not trust that. But it's getting closer to where it's like an entity you can interact with. Mm. So part of that is the chat, but part of it is also just the system. It's more general. Mm. It's not trained. I have to be careful here. I'm going to, I'm going to say this and, and, and step it. It's not trained towards hyper specific tasks, although technically LLMs are trained to predict, predict the next token. And, and there's some caveats there, but it's not trained to like, just say, you know, 
do classification, do sentiment analysis. Like that is a very human thing, yeah. like sentiment and connotation of words, but it's not like um, intelligent. <laughs> yeah, I didn't give precise definitions, but as um, as a younger generation might say, the vibe is like it's closer to AGI. I'm not willing to say we have AGI yet, but it's it's closer. It's like it's getting there. I love it. Uh, that is a really good question. I might have lost it. Uh, I loved what you said about defining reason, the sentiment, sentiment analysis, how sentiment analysis is something that comes natural. Yeah. Okay. That's what it was. It was about, do you think that we have created a human-like intelligence or that we have created an alien-like intelligence? And I guess we would have to talk about what an alien is and, and everything like that. But if you were to pick a vibe and this is speculation, I'm not asking you to, I don't think anybody's an expert in this specific question, but, uh, but what do you, what do you think about that conundrum? Oh, that's a good question. So I guess I wouldn't phrase it as alien, but like an intelligence that's not exactly similar to ours. Um, I will let other experts, you know, um, chime in and, and uh, say whether or not we already have intelligence that just happens to not be the same intelligence as ours. Like that is a, an interesting way to think about it. Um, interesting. I think, yeah, I think actually I'll, I'll say we are leaning towards there um, a little bit because it's based on human training data and that's what we're generating kind of human-like text, um, human-like reasoning to some extent, maybe human-like images as well with uh, image generation and other things. But I guess the incentives and in living in, in living environments of these systems are, are different than, than how we live as, as humans. So I, I don't want to get too philosophical and say, well, we evolved differently because evolution and we live in society and jobs and, you know, but these systems, like they're incentive, like they literally have reward functions, but it's not like, oh, well, they need to pay the bills and they evolve a certain way and then they develop emotions and things. Um, yeah, uh, I think I'll say one comment that might that might clear up things. I'm trying to recognize the capability of these systems yeah. and acknowledge why they seem human-like, but yeah. I'm trying to not anthropomorphize yeah, them too exactly. much yeah. because um, this is kind of an obscure example, but it might, it might help. Um, some people think things like bonsai, where you grow these small trees and you kind of, you know, really force and shape them to be like torturing the tree. If you think of them as like, you know, creatures with pain, because you're like, oh, you're twisting them into some weird design. They're not supposed to do it and you trim them and, you know, but uh, plants don't feel pain. They didn't evolve to feel pain. Um, there's just not an evolutionary benefit to it because they can't easily move. So they don't feel pain. So it doesn't make sense to to anthropomorphize them in that sense. Like it, it's it's not accurate to to anthropomorphize them in that sense. Um, yeah, I I don't know if that's super helpful. Like there's certain things we can anthropomorphize, like this reasoning capability. But um, it's like you know living, breathing creatures. I'm not I'm not sure about that. Yeah, it's it's uh, that was very helpful. Um, I've never heard of this relationship between movement and pain. It sounds very interesting because it does make sense, of course, that you have um, plants, plant life, you know, you have animal life and then you have and but even even before that, back into the cell and stuff like that, because the cells move and the cells recognize their whether there's, you know, uh, uh, there's attraction and repulsion uh, and then food and prey. 
so I believe all those things are are all the way down the stack, all the way to different cells and such. Uh, but then with with animals, once you got a, a collection of cells that are have their movement, uh, you know, can go all these different places versus plants not being able to move. Very interesting. I loved what you said about anthropomorphication. Um, I also strongly agree that we can't anthropomorphize it. Uh, I think a lot of people are making that mistake. Uh, and it feels like there, there's some, it's a new form of intelligence uh, that is, I, I wanna go more into that incentivization. Uh, you probably, you might have this actual information um, because you know how to code these things, you do data science. Uh, I, I do know that these things have rewards. I don't know how they have rewards. So how do we actually reward the, um, the algorithm to do certain things? Uh, I'll be honest, I'd have to brush this up, so brush up on the technical details, so I'll try to speak very broadly, but um, at the end of the day, these LLMs are still just neural networks, so they're just functions you put in things and then they can change state. Um, and we we think of them as like neurons, but they're not mm -hmm. really neurons, yeah, but yeah. you can feed in things to them and then you can change their behavior at the end by kind of scoring them. And that's what I mean by a reward, like you have some input data and you expect some some output data or some distribution of output data so like after like before now and maybe you expect the word the or something like that and you have these patterns in, in the raw data you feed it in and you just try to make sure the outputs mimic that um it's a little bit more complicated you'd you'd make sure the distribution mimics that so you'd assign numbers to them from zero and one but but the point is that it's not like um yeah, like a reward that we would have. It's it's yeah. just kind of this um, enforcement, this system to to change their behavior. And that's all in the math. And that's why data science is so important in these things, right? It, so this might be a good opportunity to, to, to go into what is data science. So what is data science and how does it interrelate with machine learning? Well, that's a good question. Um, and I'm sure people have lots of opinions. I'll try to give mine, but not be too strong about it. So just being very practical and looking at the job market for people with data science titles and things like that, data science is closer to analytics and that kind of thing. Uh, and very roughly speaking, data science is a is just an interdisciplinary field that uses, that borrows from a lot of other fields that involve data like statistics, applied math, uh, of course, machine learning. And it uses those tools to get insight from data. So what this means is you're trying to understand the data. And of course you will do things with the data. And nowadays data scientists can implement things and write software as well. But I feel like um, data science broadly is about understanding the data, where it comes from, how the data is generated, what the data says. Whereas machine learning is of course, literally developing machine learning models, trying to understand machine learning models, mm. but also doing things with the machine learning models and not necessarily um, making a machine learning model to understand something. Now, nowadays, I think in um, your episode of Alexi, you mentioned something about mechanistic interpretability. So people are exploring this and thinking, well, if you just make a machine learning model, what can it tell us about the data you feed in? So maybe that's not totally new, but I think generally speaking, the focus is on doing things with these tools. Mm. and not necessarily the data yeah uh that's that's kind of unfair because yeah. because people yeah. pay a lot for the data and the data is very important to make powerful models but 
Um, oh, that's the a good emphasis question. is on building useful things, and you yeah. just happen to need good data, but it's not. Yeah, yeah interesting. So it's the, what is the role of data within machine learning? Okay, so here's a better question. Once you have the data, do you no longer need that data? Like, and if this if that question didn't doesn't make sense, let me I can re re ask it or give an example. I think I think I'm kind of um, understanding what you're saying. Let me try to phrase this correctly. So, let's say you have very good curated QA data and you feed it into a model. Does that mean you can throw away the data itself? I'd say probably not because you build one model and you may want to you know a b test build another model variation so you shouldn't like literally throw away the data but i think the the deeper thing you're asking about is if you just thoroughly train a powerful model with the data does does the does the model itself have the actual data already and you can just ignore it like if somehow we make chat gpt perfectly understand wikipedia then can we just stop using yeah, wikipedia exactly, um, exactly. i'm going to say no, I can't give like a a good philosophical reason, but somehow, even if the model is up to date with the data, somehow, like that objection, um, there's something different about directly looking at the text versus like talking to someone who knows yes. about yeah, the text. Yeah, primary primary sources versus secondary sources. Very interesting because uh, this go this go. It, it's there, there's a guy on Twitter called Brian Rommel. Rommel. And Brian Rommel is doing some very interesting stuff in terms of he's gone and collected a bunch of manuscripts from uh, the anywhere from the 1920s to the 1990s, a uh, bunch of magazines, bunch of newsletters. Uh, and there's something fundamentally different about the language that we use as human beings right now. No, I'm sorry, not fundamentally different. It's probably not fundamentally different, but it is different between the language we use now, modern uh, more modern, I guess, than it was from 1920 to 1970, and he's training models on those languages. Uh, and and it's I, I'm sure it's going to be very interesting to see the difference between all these different things. And and it reminds me about primary and secondary sources. And it's the same thing as like reading Plato versus talking about talking with people who have read Plato. Um, and uh, and really interesting to bring the AI element into it as well. I want to I want to actually go back to that question about the the value because what I was really asking is does the data itself become valueless? And let's take a commercial example. Like let's say a company, um, a Standard Oil. Uh, Standard Oil is is has all this data that's really important about all the different refineries all over the world, and 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 they want to basically use that model to do something valuable. Uh, with that that information and they have to or actually let's say they want to do something new in a new project that they need to go buy another data set in order to do that once they've bought that data set do you think that 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 data set itself still has value i guess other companies might want to buy it or stuff like that but and yeah what do you think on that general question so it's interesting you brought up oil um so this is not this is technically not even ml but it's it's related but you can imagine an oil company trying to find new oil wells and they they invest a lot of money in getting good sensors and things so they can look at the general geography and then think oh well this is likely to have oil we should dig here so you could argue that you can get the data you can do the analysis and then you can say oh well here's the oil well and they dig and they find it then at that point technically maybe they could just um throw away the mm, data because yeah. the analysis already told them and they already extracted the the concrete resources However, just scientifically speaking, um, I don't think it's 
maybe not valuable in the short term, again, after they get the oil, but it could be helpful in the longer term if they need to look for oil later. And they want more accurate models, so they want more data in the past, yeah. and they incorporate the new data, of course, from digging, and they can use that to generate another accurate model to find oil again in the future. Um, yeah. I'm not an expert in, in geology, but that's my intuition for yeah. applied math models. Um, you can't always just add more data and expect it to augment things, but yeah, it would be a shame to not um, try to make more accurate models. Even if you already built some, a model that you think is good, you can improve with the next iteration. That's yeah, interesting. So this is getting me into a territory I would love to ask about. What uh, what is it that most people that you've worked with in your career at data science or even people in academia who don't understand data science, but you need to interact with, what do most of them get wrong about your job? And um, what are the things that are the hardest to understand without being a data science scientist? Well, I can't say this is the same for every company, um, but just browsing like our data science on Reddit or I guess other job forms and things, People have this expectation that you need to be really strong at classical statistics, mm. which isn't wrong, which isn't bad. It can be helpful for a lot of use cases, and, and it honestly can be more helpful at invisible in some cases, but um, it's not really focused on particular tools. I think it's also somewhat flexibility as well. Um, like if you do more analytics focused data science, like of course there are standard tools and you should use those more often, but I guess for more R&D kind of data science for us, um, you do need to be flexible when new tools come out. And we just happen to be in an AI summer, so I mean, um, but yeah, so to, to, to more succinctly put that, um, there are standard tools. You can get a data science job without knowing them. Um, that's... Mm going to be unusual, but it, it does happen. So, yeah. It kind of goes back to first principles, right? Because it's like, it's 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 first principles of any discipline, the things to understand really about anything that you want to learn are those foundational things that explain the tools. Because the tools are just like a, you know, it's just like another thing that we use. Yeah, they're getting really good. The tools are getting really, really good. And this actually le leads me to a question about tools in general in technology. One of the craziest things that I've started to learn as I've been coding is that it's what my friend is telling me, the most important thing that my friends, my friend is telling me are these random tools that he uses to go get this r r job done. For example, Veet. Uh, uh, Veet is a new uh, uh, um, a startup that provides a server really easily, a local server. And like that, like you just plug it in, you just put the node package manager and there you got a server and you go out and then there's another one called Vercel. Uh, and, and like finding those, I could have asked ChatGPT if I knew how to ask the right question, but I didn't know how to write ask the right question. And so my friend told me about it and then it like jumps me ahead to like uh, two years. And that seems like that's a pattern that's that's going to increase very quickly. Um, and, I, you know, you've mentioned a whole bunch of tools in your data science toolkit. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts, this isn't like a specific question, but what your thoughts on the general idea, the general, <laughs> uh, era that we're entering, where it's just like tool after tool, after tool, after tool, and like how to find out about them. And like, are you excited about that future? Are you scared of it? What's, what, what's your take on it? Um, 
Well, first, I gotta say I'm a big fan of Vite, although I no longer do front-end development, but it's much better than Create React app if you happen to be using React. Um, very nice, cool that you mentioned that. Um, as for general tools, uh, I think I'm also different here than my colleagues, or yeah, I, I might be more old school for some things, but I like to implement a lot more things from scratch. Mm. And some tools I like are uh, Vim. So I like that to edit things quickly and I use WSL, which isn't old, but I use Windows. Uh, that's great. I can play video games and things and do work, but um, to code, I need to use a Linux environment. So I use WSL so I can have like a virtual Ubuntu machine. Um, that's not quite coding tools necessarily or yeah. like ML tools, but that's those are the kind of tools I meant. Um, as far as like tools like, um, I think uh, Michael mentioned to me like a prompt, prompt optimizer and there are various tools like that. Which are helpful for reducing costs, but not hurting the quality of the prompts. Those are important. Um, I haven't kept up as much with those. Uh, but yeah, for my personal preference, I would say I'm kind of neutral towards them. I don't try to use a lot of these things. Maybe I should, like Helicone, which we have pro access to now and other monitoring things for LLMs. Mm -hmm. I try to do things more from first principles in Scratch, which is my personal style. Of course, using the right tools you're slower so there's a there's a balance um but yeah for the general sentiment i think people shouldn't be afraid maybe initially when new tools are made documentation is not as good but as long as people are using them you can try to talk to people and outside of chat gpt you can go on discord or reddit and you know try to talk and do personal projects with them so it's not a big hurdle to try to rapidly use new tools as long as there's a decent user base. I yeah, think. yeah, and the documentation is key. Um, and ChatGPT totally, totally changes the game in that, particularly with the web search, because instead of instead of uh, instead of just uh, you know asking ChatGPT or going on Stack Overflow, you can now ask ChatGPT to go find the Stack Overflow stuff. And it's really funny. I'll I'll, I'll share a, a misinformation thing that I ran into recently. A misinformation in my own head. Somewhere along the line, like three months ago, I learned that ChatGPT, when it does its web search, is actually doing RAG, retrieval, retrieval augmented generation. And then I asked a question actually on the Slack channel and in Invisible, the machine learning Slack channel. And uh, then I went in and, and I asked it and apparently one, one guy questioned whether that was true. And then uh, Cameron came in and said, it definitely isn't true that the web search is a totally different thing and that, that it's not RAG, it's not doing RAG. Um, do you know anything about this? And like, if what is RAG used for? That's a good question. I don't know about the implementation of how um, ChatGPT does web search. I want to say RAG is more when you have like, um, okay, technically the internet is like a fixed set of websites and documents, but um, my gut feeling it's not quite the same thing. Um, yeah, I think it's also important to be careful about terminology. So RAG is like this hot topic and it is very helpful for things like chatbots, but there's a more general topic, which is semantic search, where you don't search by raw characters, but you search by meaning. Uh -huh. And I think that's sometimes what people want and not necessarily just finding the right document and injecting the whole document. But you could be a new, um, 
You could be learning a new web framework or whatever. You don't know the exact syntax, but you want to search for something like, oh, what's the components in this framework? Or um, mm. how does the data model work in this component? Like how is data passed? Like in React, it's one way. In other framework, it's two ways. But you don't know the exact terminology, but you have, this, you have the vibe of what's going on. And semantic search could potentially help there. Um, cool. Yeah, sorry, I, I jumped to a more... A different topic but that's how i conceptualize things like rag is a very specific thing for llms but uh -huh. there's semantic search which is kind of what we're trying to do yeah and it's it's a good reminder of in general that we get we were talking about this earlier we get focused on one tool but the tool is just kind of like one single manifestation of this thing that happens really quickly and then then technology just overtakes it like like v is same good example is is beta and, and vhs uh, and then beta, nobody knows what beta anymore. Barely anybody knows what uh, VHS is, let alone CDs or Blu-ray. You know, it's all, it's all, it's all, um, it's all, it's just such a crazy world we live in. Uh, so for the last five minutes or so, um, we could, we can speak about that subject too. We could also speak about, uh, like what's the coolest thing that you can publicly share that you're working on and invisible that other people might not know about, uh, that you're really excited about. That's a good question. Um, what can I publicly share? Mm -hmm. Well, I will say something I look forward to working in the future more so is um, self-hosted models. So there's many applications for this, um, particularly for AIT. It's helpful. So you can use LLMs to do useful things, check for grammar and maybe more complicated things like ranking, um, ranking completions and generations without passing them to some competitors um, LLM. So that will be pretty helpful, but also the potential to fine tune these models and do whatever we want with these models. So that's going to unlock a lot of capabilities. So I'm looking forward to that. Not quite working on that yet, but probably one of the most exciting things this quarter, besides also rags, which Michael is working on and is uh, pretty cool as well. Mm. Um, what about locally hosted? Well, there's two questions and this is pure specula speculation. Uh, what do you like locally hosted LLMs? Do you see any sort of reason for a locally hosted LLM? And for the, my listeners who don't know, a locally hosted LLM is one that runs on your computer or your phone. And then it's sort of like a follow-up question. Do you, what do you see as the intersection between mobile and AI? Do you think that AI is going to be on our phones one day, or do you think it's just going to connect to the cloud and that there's no reason to actually get the thing on the, get the LLM on your phone? What do you, what's your take on that? Uh, actually, I would love um, to be able to host powerful locally hosted models, but mm. even with my desktop setup, it's, yep. it's not strong enough. I don't have like an H100 GPU and I don't see the need to invest in it now. Like it may be obsolete in like 10 years. <laughs> Um, so locally hosted would be very nice for various reasons, but um, also just cost. Like, well, then I already paid for the hardware. I own it. I don't have to pay for some cloud service. Like, um, I think when I started out programming and things, I hated like paying for services and things, even if there were free trials. And in principle, I still would like to not pay for things for personal projects, which, I mean, once you have a good job, you may think, oh, well, it's it's good learning and it's an investment, but I still don't want to pay money to some cloud provider um, uh -huh. more practically i think for your question about phones and smaller devices um 
I do wonder how latency and things will will affect things there. Maybe that's not a big issue, but technically we already have some AI capabilities, just not as good as LLM. And we have chat, um, OpenAI's ChatGPT app and things like that, but we can already locally take a picture, I guess, with any new modern smart Android smartphone and, and um, do basic text recognition and basic object identification and things like that. Um, I think it's with Google Lens and there's probably something similar with iPhone. So that's already there. But for LLMs locally on your phone or, or from the cloud, I think because it's from the cloud, maybe you don't need as much compute um, on your phone. But yeah, I'm not mm. sure how it will evolve in five years and in, in 10 years. So mm. it's a possibility. Technically, we already have it with some apps. Mm. I don't know how many of the other LLM providers have apps as well, but it's there. It's not as embedded into our phones, but people have opinions about mm. <laughs> whether they want an LLM to access all their files. So yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, how can people find out more about your work, uh, whether they're at Invisible or uh, whether they just want to connect? Uh, on Invisible, you can just DM me, um, iukino. Um, elsewhere, I don't have a big web presence now, but you can go to my LinkedIn if you have any other non-invisible things to discuss, and I'll try to keep up to date there. Thank you so much. All right. Sounds good. Have a nice Hey, thanks for tuning in to Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. And if you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.